contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. In times of spiritual and moral chaos, it can be hard to discern truth from error and to apply it to all of life. God's word is not silent, and we don't have to be either. This is Once for All Delivered with Caleb Castro and Andrew Smith. Hello, OFAD lads and lasses. This is Once for All Delivered. I am Andrew Smith. And I am Caleb Castro. Caleb, you're wearing exactly the same shirt as when we talked about this topic last time. It's true. I, I wanted to make sure that there's some kind of consistency in recordings from here on, but not actually, because this is a pre-recorded video. Because yep. I am also wearing the same shirt. We actually recorded this after we did the first installment of Comparing Catechisms. Comparing Catechisms, What Sin Demands. We are going to pick up approximately where we left off last time, looking at the rest of Heidelberg Lord's Day 5 and its parallel and similar texts in the Westminster Larger and Shorter Catechisms. Well, yes, yes. So we don't have to, uh, I suppose backtrack on some of the, the the background of this lord's day because uh, uh, i'd recommend you go into the previous uh into the previous video uh on question and answer uh 12 and 13 um but we are continuing here um with this first lord's day of uh the section on deliverance and well we want to begin here and just reading uh the two questions and answers will be uh we'll be uh, using as the framework of our discussion today. Ooh, so can't use yeah. that word. Oh yeah, that's right. Sorry. On the, uh, on the uh, literal plain uh, sense reading of six day, 24, six hour day, 24 hour structure, hour, the of, structure of the questions. That's right. Just a little, a little Klein jokes for you. But yeah, or not, not that not that you know anyone here has anything to do with saying anything about Klein. Klein who? So the uh, Calvin anyways, Klein, Calvin Klein. Calvin Klein. We're we're actually we are we're actually uh, anti-Calvinists of the Klein variety. <laughs> Anti-Calvinists. Wow. And anti-Calvin Kleinists. That. Calvin Kalinians. <laughs> Anyways, speaking of speaking of uh, of which, question fourteen. Which, if you're watching the video, you see a handy dandy, uh, sparkly slide that was put together by Andrew, and it reads: Question: Can another creature, any at all, pay this debt for us? Uh, and this debt is, uh, of course, uh, just just a fast uh, note. Uh, this debt is, is uh, referring to the payment of our sins that must be, uh, satisfied, um, so that we can escape punishment. So again, go back to the previous two questions. Um, so can another creature, any at all, pay this debt, uh, for us? Answer, no. To begin with, God will not punish any other creature for what a human is guilty of. Furthermore, no mere creature can bear the weight of God's eternal wrath against sin and deliver others from it. And from question answer 15, 
Question answer 15 continues on then. Well, what kind of mediator and deliverer should we look for then? And the answer is one who is true and righteous man, yet more powerful than all creatures. That is one who is also true God. And so we're, we're really, so, so we're, we're the previous couple questions are asking about, hey, is there a possibility of satisfaction at all um, for sins? Well, now the answer is coming, well, ultimately, yes. The thing is, uh, the thing is that this individual, whoever, whoever can pay the sins, must be a man. Um, and the answer is, I mean, the answer is fairly straightforward here in this, uh, in this uh, part of the catechism. Um, it's not angels who sinned. Uh, it's not angels who sinned for man, I should say. Uh, it's not a bull or a goat that sinned for man. So while God did uh, eventually, uh, well, God did set up actually already from the garden uh, uh, as a sign, um, animal sacrifice that could be uh, utilized in as a substitution, a temporal substitution for uh, the payment of man's, uh, sin. Uh, God uh, had an animal skinned and covered the nakedness and shame of our first parents in the garden um, right after the fall. Uh, that would be a sign for uh, the uh, for the covering blood um, in uh, I should say the propitiatory blood. Uh, from then on, animal uh, sacrifice, um, you know, became uh, a norm, if you will. Uh, Cain, uh, Abel's already offering up um, an animal sacrifice in worship of the Lord. Uh, animal sacrifices occurred the the moment that uh, that Noah and his family came off of the ark um, and delivered from uh, the wrath of God uh, against the world with the flood. Um, and then, of course, the uh, system for um, the ceremonial sacrifices with the nation of Israel. So the shedding of blood was required, and yet that is why the bulls and goats and the sacrifices in Israel system could never pay for man's sin, only a temporal pardon. Uh, simply, uh, the sum of, of question 14 really is um, Ezekiel 18:20: The soul that sins shall die. And since it is man's soul that has sinned as a race and uh, our individual actual sins, man's death is called for. Yep. Um, so to uh, look alongside of that from the Westminster standards, um, it's not quite a perfect fit. This is one of the areas where the catechisms start to diverge a little more, especially the shorter the larger follows a little more closely, and actually when we get into the next Lord's Day, we'll be looking at the larger a lot more because it talks about uh, the similar the similar material in this section, whereas the shorter really doesn't. Um, but one that is relevant, uh, because basically we're at the point in this catechism where we're, we're looking at, well, what needs to be done in light of this sin? Uh, well, what do we need? And so 
the Westminster Shorter approaches this a little differently. In fact, it's one of the larger answers in the Shorter Catechism. <laughs> Question 20. Did God leave all mankind to perish in the estate of sin and misery? The answer. <clears throat> God, having out of his mere good pleasure from all eternity, elected some to everlasting life, did enter into a covenant of grace to deliver them out of the estate of sin and misery and to bring them into an estate of salvation. And this is key as we're looking at this comparison here by a redeemer. So uh, what you see here is that it is at this point in the uh, shorter catechism. So sort of in a similar place, even topically as the Heidelberg, it's right after having talked about creation and then the fall and sin uh, in question 20 uh, after the breaking of the covenant of works because the Westminster does use this more explicitly covenantal language uh, it has a more developed covenant theology coming you know roughly 80 or so years after the Heidelberg um, there is this pivot to the covenant of grace and the covenant of grace, which for all the other things that we learn about it here, it involves, uh, it's rooted in God's election. Um, it is a covenant of grace as separate from a covenant of works. So it's not a covenant where we keep uh, what God requires. We do what God requires. We earn eternal life and blessedness by perfect personal perpetual obedience and entire obedience that's the other word i keep forgetting uh, that comes <laughs> up occasionally too uh, perfect personal perpetual and entire obedience so just to tell you how comprehensive the obedience of the covenant of works uh was required to be um this is not that covenant this is not a covenant where we merit this favor from god it is one where we have to where we are delivered we talked last time uh in this series about deliverance and what that entails um and then some other language introduced here that the Westminster Standards like is that of estates. So there's the estate of sin and misery. Now, this isn't an estate like we think of where you think of like a big house in the country on lots of land or the other way you might think of an estate where it's uh, somebody dies and it's all their property and money and stuff being left to their heirs. Uh, no, this is just an estate as in uh, the situation, the more just state uh, this is the um, the position in which man finds himself. So there's the estate of sin and misery uh, under the broken covenant of works. Uh, and then in the covenant of grace, the estate of salvation. And this is done, again, by a redeemer, by a mediator, which we'll get into that a little more as we go along. Yeah, the... Uh... And actually, the um, you're, you 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 had already brought up though the uh, uh, God uh, requiring one to uh, the redeemer to be not only true man but also true God. Um, you know, you, you already made a mention of this in terms of the covenant of grace, but uh, uh, to push to push that envelope a little further. Um, if you look back at a, uh, if you look back at question fourteen, um, the the explanation for the true man, uh, the the, necess the necessity of him being also true God, him being more powerful than all creatures, is already hinted at. So that statement there, furthermore, this second part says, 
So, so uh, we had said already, no other creature, no mere creature, um, angel, beast, man himself can uh, can pay for what man is guilty of. But no mere creature can bear the weight of God's eternal wrath against sin and deliver others from it. And, and right there, that phrase, the weight, bear the weight of God's eternal wrath, is it's the full dispensing of God's wrath. A, uh, uh, God's justice um, against sin. And so uh, Zacharias uh, or Sinus, Zachy Bear, he, um, he makes, uh, he makes a, a pretty profound comment on this, on what exactly he's saying here. Um, again, or Sinus is one of the, uh, uh, one of the authors uh, involved in the Heidelberg Catechism, at least by tradition. But he, he says um, that, uh, no creature except man could satisfy for man. Yea, God could not be satisfied for the sin of man by the eternal destruction of heaven and earth and of the angels themselves and all other creatures. And you, you pause and think of that. Um, the, 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 the entirety of the destruction eternally of creation could not pay for the sin of man. Um, he goes on to say that no creature possesses such power as to be able to sustain a finite punishment equivalent to that which is infinite for the purpose of making satisfaction for the infinite guilt of man. Uh, he explains that a little more. A mere creature would be consumed and reduced to nothing before satisfaction could be made to God in this way for for God is a consuming fire. So he's saying that as finite creatures, even if we're to undergo, uh, even if we're to undergo punishment and condemnation for eternity in, uh, uh, undergo condemnation in eternity, uh, in eternity, even that is not enough to satisfy that full wrath of God. And that's why uh, condemnation must be eternal. Man is simply just finite. He cannot bear the full weight of that wrath, either in this life or in death. Um, so it has to be perpetual punishment. Uh, so he, he continues just a little bit further. This reason proves that no creature in the whole universe was able to make satisfaction to God for man's sin by punishment so as to come forth from the same which escape was necessary in order to our deliverance. There could therefore in this way, on account of the weakness of creature, be no just proportion between sin and uh, the punishment for sin. Because the punishment of a mere creature could not be a price of sufficient dignity and value for our redemption. So we, we would simply, we, we simply just cannot uh, make any sort of payment, even with our debts. Mm -hmm. As we talked about before, we're continually adding to them. Uh, but this also shows the necessity of a redeemer. Who's uh, God. <laughs> who is God, but then also who is man. Um, he has to be a redeemer that can pay, uh, pay the penalty in kind. 
Uh, this gets into a lot of what you see, for instance, in the book of Hebrews around chapters 9 and 10 and talking about, uh, even as it says in, in Hebrews 10, 4, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Uh, there's other language about uh, how these same sacrifices, they're made over and over again. They're made continually. Um, these sacrifices were not adequate to take away sins. They were types and shadows. They pointed forward to the reality of Christ who was to come. And uh, the saints of the Old Testament partook of Christ through these types and shadows. But the sacrifices in themselves uh, were not adequate, even from, you know, uh, in the garden when Adam and Eve had to be clothed with animals and the sacrifice of Abel and uh, the sacrifices of Noah and on from there and then the whole entire mosaic economy, the ceremonial sacrifices of the temple. Um, they were all pointing to Christ, but they themselves did nothing for sin. Um, and there's even some recognition of that in the Old Testament. You can see it in uh, texts like Psalm 51, uh, where God does not desire sacrifice. The sacrifice isn't really the thing that matters. It's the heart um, it's the heart that's being uh, washed clean, even though they don't fully know the means by which uh, we are washed clean, which is Christ. They knew through types and shadows that which God revealed to them uh, for their salvation in Christ. And the uh, uh, Ursinus has a uh, has his own um, catechisms as well, a shorter catechism and a larger catechism that. Uh, and he drew a lot from in in his uh, in his part of the uh, Heidelberg Catechism. So he had already uh, he had already been working on one um, prior to this. But uh, in in the larger Catechism of Zacharias or Sinus, uh, in question answer twenty nine, he asks, "Why does sin merit eternal punishment?" And he says basically exactly what Andrew just said. First, because God's justice demands that the punishment fit the crime. But for every sin is an infinite wrong because it is an offense against God, that is the infinite good. Therefore, it merits infinite punishment. Um, I mean, that's how I took what you were saying there. But second, because sin does not cease, its punishment cannot cease. Without the grace of Christ, no one stops sinning. Therefore, no one can ever be delivered from punishment. And that's... That's actually uh, that's actually the flip side there too uh, of uh, perhaps it can some measure be a little difficult to detect uh, unless you're versed uh, somewhat in um, in the language of of the magisterial reformation or form scholasticism. But what's also being implied with this question and answer, um, and then uh, flat out or stated more, I should say, stated more explicitly in question and answer fifteen is um, it's not just the satisfaction for sin that's required to live and to be delivered, or to be delivered and live, rather. Um, sin must be paid for, and yet even if our sin is paid for and expunged, um, there's still the issue that we're not righteous. Mm-hmm. We need both a satisfaction for sin and a true basis for righteousness and living in righteousness to uh in the obedience uh to in the obedience of god and we need because we also still stumble and fall in our uh in our weakness even as believers throughout the rest of this life um as we put to death 
our old man, uh, we still need a we need a permanent abiding satisfaction, a justification, um, and then also this a sanctification uh, of uh, of the application of Christ's righteousness uh, to look ahead. But question and answer fifteen it, that that's where this this takes it. Uh, what kind of mediator and deliverer should we look for then? But answer. Before we do that, oh, sorry, though, go ahead. I, yeah, I, I, I was just, just going to read the first line real quick. Yep. Um, and it's talking about our need uh, not only for a payment to be made for our sins, but also a righteousness. This is where we get into the distinction that uh, Reformed theology often makes between the active and passive obedience of Christ. The active obedience, Christ keeping the law, um, his, his life of perfect righteousness um, in our place. That is part of the righteousness of Christ, which we receive in our justification. Um, but then also uh, his satisfaction, his passive obedience, his suffering in which he made a full atonement for sins. And uh, oh, sorry, uh, if you're watching the video, you'll see I smiled there. I thought Andrew was going to say something that I, where I was hoping to take it in this really briefly. The uh, well, I, the first line, just real fast with with question and answer 15 in uh, the question, what kind of mediator and deliverer should we look for then? Uh, answer just that first line one who is a true and righteous man um, so that that's key there but anyways where I was, I was smiling because I thought where you're gonna take that uh, and I was hoping was actually um, this is where you can have certain uh, breaks in um, in I'll say uh, so-called reformed groups um, uh, that do not hold to uh, the imputation of Christ's active obedience Andrew was talking about. Um, and so there, there's a one-sided kind of like, a, a, or I should say a short-sided um, atonement that Christ makes. Uh, we're talking about this meteor. We know it's Jesus. Um, the, but but the uh, that'll be explained further in the next Lord's Day. But basically, uh, some people will say it's, Christ's sacrifice on the cross was about uh, satisfaction for sins, and really no more. It it it, it, it took care of the um, it took care of the debt that needed to be paid. But you, we still have to abide in uh, and basically ourselves persevere in paying the obedience throughout our um, Christian life. And uh, if we don't uh, persevere in that obedience, we could lose that salvation. And this is this is the the this is basically the 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 general thought that Rome had come to. Um, you you know you 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 get a we won't go into all the nitty gritty the satisfaction theory of the atonement that comes up, but uh, there's no real there's no real um, payment for or provision of. Uh, of righteousness uh, for us, justification. But then you also get into the a, a splinter group uh, that tends to try to associate with Reformed group uh, believers on uh, that called the Federal Visionists, which we've uh, actually I don't know if we've ever really explicitly talked about them, but we've talked. I think we have, remember. but it's been a while. Yeah. It might have been Bobcast era. So just briefly. Yeah. Uh, Probably started late 90s, 
Mm-hmm. Um, when it rose, yeah, into more yeah. prominence. Um, it rose to prominence in uh, more so probably in the early 2000s. It can trace back to uh, some of the covenantal formulations of Norman Shepard, uh, who was a professor at Westminster, Philadelphia, um, and then uh, was carried forward into others. Some names you're going to hear, you're probably going to recognize. Uh, guys like Steve Wilkins, Peter Lightheart, Rich Lusk, uh, James Jordan, and Doug Wilson. I might have said Doug Wilson twice. Did I? Well, he deserves to be said twice, but. <laughs> I mean, he's probably the most popular representative of this. Um, he also has a uh, rather complicated relationship with it in that he repudiates it while still kind of affirming it, and it's just a big mess of a thing. Um, and other podcasts have handled that like in detail yeah, a lot better. I mean, so we don't need all, to, but yeah, there's a lot of ground that others have trod that we don't need to bother. But just in basic summary, um, yeah, they essentially had this movement uh, sort of based around this idea of uh, of uh, and what and what it basically started with is they wanted there to be like a more objective reality in the sacraments they wanted baptism and the lord's supper to really do things Mm -hmm. which is not that we don't believe they do things but they do things by the holy spirit uh, according to his will and his timing but they wanted it to be like objective almost like an ex opera operato that so they ended up believing in a light form of baptismal regeneration and this is what leads into this greater problem is if you believe in baptismal regeneration inevitably then you have the difficulty of how do you account for apostasy if you believe in baptismal regeneration that baptism Mm -hmm. regenerates you uh you know gives you new life baptism makes you a christian then if someone falls away if someone does not remain in the faith then the only way you have to explain that is that they were regenerate they were truly christians they had true faith true salvation and then they lost it and so that's why um that's how this movement sort of ends up associated with this um i've heard it explained of you you're in by grace and you stay in by works there's no active obedience imputed to you there's no christ keeping the law for you it's well christ will get you in but then you have to be obedient uh to remain right that's an ultra oversimplistic explanation of a very complicated movement that caused a great deal of controversy and uh division uh, denominations pretty much all the napark denominations ended up in various ways uh, reporting on and condemning this theology because it's not reformed it's more roman catholic or lutheran uh is lutheran ish it, it but it's not reformed theology um, right and the uh and that's and that's precisely, I, I think, um, in Andrew's clarification of it. Uh, that's, I think, you, you could you could understand if you weren't familiar with it before. Uh, you could understand why I'm stating here um, that with question uh, and answer 15, it is making a, if not entirely explicit, it is at least plain enough to show the necessity of righteousness and Christ's righteousness for us. Question answer 15 is saying, uh, and note that phrase, what kind of mediator and deliverer? 
So a mediator and deliverer. So this 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 consists of Christ who uh, who who uh, stands and acts in between us, uh, in between us and uh, in God, us who are unrighteous and unholy and wicked, fallen creatures, sinners, and God who is holy, justice, perfect, um, <laughs> and Christ who is the God Man. Um, he renders satisfaction as our substitute, but he also, uh, in, in standing between man and God, but he is also giving us his righteousness as a mediator, um, just as much as he is as deliverer. Um, so that, that's, uh, and actually, um, I was going to note this, uh, Andrew said earlier how, you know, the Heidelberg Catechism is not particularly uh, developed uh, or as he's saying it basically mature in terms of its articulation of covenant theology uh, yeah. compared to where the Westminster is at. Um, but the, these, these things are in their background overall. So it's not as though these things weren't understood. These covenant themes and, and, and motifs weren't understood at the time that they were writing. In fact, uh, Zacharias or Sinus in his uh, larger catechism um this, this ties into what, what, what I'm saying here with the mediator, Christ's mediator, both for our satisfaction and righteousness. He says, um, he says first in question third, uh, his, his question 31 of his larger catechism, what is that covenant? Answer, it is reconciliation with God obtained by the mediation of Christ in which God promises believers that because of Christ, he will always be a gracious father and give them eternal life and in which they in turn pledge to accept these benefits in true faith and as befits grateful and obedient children to glorify him forever. And both parties publicly confirm this mutual promise with visible signs, which we call sacraments. So already you can see, first of all, sacraments aren't playing a role in initially essentially generating faith. They are the ongoing uh, seal of the work of Christ in our active reception or, or our, I should say, our active uh, ascent of what has been done. But one more now, Ursinus continues in question 36, asking, what is the difference between law and gospel? And he says, the law contains the natural covenant established by God with humanity and creation. That is, it is known by humanity by nature. It requires our perfect obedience to God. And this is what we spoke of a bit. Uh, in extension uh, on the, the terms of the law and obedience and performance in our last episode on the catechism. Uh, it requires a perfect obedience to God and it promises eternal life to those who keep it and threatens eternal punishment to those who do not. The gospel, however, contains the covenant of grace. And again, this is, this is Ursinus writing at the time uh, or just prior to the writing of the catechism in 15, uh, in 15, uh, 63. Okay. So, the, the, these, this understanding of what the covenant of grace is, is already behind the Heidelberg Catechism. And so note that although this covenant of, of grace exists, it is not known at all by nature. It shows us the fulfillment in Christ of the righteousness that the law requires and the restoration in us of that righteousness by Christ's spirit. And there's your imputation of active obedience the righteousness by Christ's spirit for us. And it promises eternal life freely because of Christ to those who believe in him. So just, just to reinforce what Andrew was saying, that 
this is this is the reformed theology. This is the historic reformed theology that's that's being broken with um, by these federal visionists. And it's even in something as, um, if, if you will, less uh, less articulated than uh, and mature than the Westminster. It's there in its right. background. Uh, just on that note, another distinctive feature of the federal vision theology is uh, it, it tends to be mono-covenantal. The guys who hold to the federal vision theology uh, essentially try to flatten the covenant of works and the covenant of grace into one, um, not recognizing the distinctions between them like we've been sketching out. Mm-hmm. Well, yes, uh... But I was going to say, that's probably all I have on this <laughs> Yeah, without I getting into the next have... question. Oh, we do we doing the next question? No, well, that's the next Lord's Day. Okay. So, um, well, I have a few it. things yet because yes. I never actually got into what the Westminster says. It's along the lines of question 15. Uh, that's um, true. So similarly uh, to question 15, uh, talking about the kind of mediator in the Heidelberg is talking about what kind of one we look for and the Westminster is talking about uh, what kind do we have? Uh, who is the redeemer of God's elect? The only redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ, who being the eternal son of God became man and so was and continueth to be God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. So you see here, uh, more clearly, but what the Heidelberg has already said uh, regarding the two natures of Christ, or at least foreshadowing the two natures of Christ, um, one who is uh, one who is true God and one who is a true and righteous man. And then this is how um, we get that Redeemer. We have um, the eternal Son of God, uh, so he was eternal, uh, we would deny any kind of subordinationism where the Son was created later, came into being later, um, but became man, took on a human nature uh, with his divine nature, and then so was, and continueth to be, so still, even now, uh, God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. But also, uh, more pertaining to uh, the reasoning behind this mediator that is both God and man. Uh, this is We get this in the larger catechism question and answer 40. It says, Why was it requisite that the mediator should be God and man in one person? Answer, It was requisite that the mediator, who was to reconcile God and man, should himself be both God and man, and this in one person, that the proper works of each nature might be accepted of God for us and relied on by us as the works of the whole person. So again, we have uh, the proper works of each nature. So we have uh, that the mediator is God because only one who is God can bear the eternal wrath of God that is due for sin. And then you have the mediator must be man because uh, man must pay for the sins of man. And that is, so it's essentially making the same argument. It's using some different wording, uh, but essentially covering the same ground. This is why we need a mediator who is God and man. And these are the issues. This is the subject that will continue to be fleshed out 
uh, in preceding Lord's Days of the Heidelberg. And then also, uh, this is where we'll be pivoting more for a while into the larger catechism, because the shorter kind of just skips this part. But the larger also goes where the Heidelberg does uh, in talking about this, making the sort of old Anselmian arguments of why the God-man. Mm-hmm. Yes, and it's uh, and part of this, at least on the, um, you know, what 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 the Heidelberg is moving towards. Uh, I'm not quite sure in terms of the structure of the Westminster, but what, what the Heidelberg is moving towards is uh, is is a core of um, basically an exposition of the Apostles' Creed. Um, so it's 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 working towards uh, towards that even now, and so this is where where much of it. Um, is uh you know this is this is kind of a um this this is a christological section of course uh it, but there's there's still something of a uh, a propedeutic um preparatory uh teaching method that's going on here mm-hmm. um as as andrew's mentioned you know uh, through a subjective uh basically natural inquiring of well if if this is the case, if you've said this, then why this? Well, because da 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 da. Okay, well then if that, then why this? So it's 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 catechetical in this nature, uh, like it, Socratic, really. But uh, it's building towards what I would say is potentially the 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 heart of the catechism in its uh, articles on uh, the creed, but particularly of Christ um, concerning Christ. Yeah. And it's a little bit of a structural departure. It is the Westminster doesn't break down the Apostles' Creed article by article like the Heidelberg does. It covers all the same ground in various mm-hmm. uh, times and ways, as we will see. Um, but it, it's at this point more where the Westminster uh, pivots to soteriology, so effectual calling, uh, repentance, justification, sanctification, perseverance, and then... Um, glorification um it follows more that structure after this point um after looking at the christology part uh, so a little different structurally but still covering the same ground really i mean covering ground that is still related um just just sort of a different approach to it yeah um yeah again this is why and this is why we're you know uh, and this is why we're really kind of following the, the Heidelberg in this term, uh, partly in that Andrew, you know, had been a candidate of the URCNA. So he, he already has familiarity uh, with uh, the three forms of unity in a, in a, uh, in a greater way of, of compared to my uh, my knowledge of the Westminster. I, I don't know nearly as much of the Westminster in, in these terms, but also just, just be, be this, this structure of the Heidelberg is quite clear. Um, very easy to follow. Um, and again, if, if uh, you hadn't listened to the first episode on kind of some of the explanations of the structure and a little bit of the background, we also mentioned there that we're following, um, uh, in part, uh, a harmonization of the Reform Confessions that was put out by Joel Beakey and uh, Sinclair Ferguson. Um, uh, I think Andrew's got it there if you needed it. So if you watch the video, you'll be able to see the cover of it there. Um, it's not as easy, I think, to find nowadays. I don't think it's being sold on RHB anymore, but you can still pick it up. Really? Thrift books. Uh, I can't recall. You, you have, someone could double check. But yeah, anyways, uh, 
Yeah, the uh, Reform Confessions uh, harmonized. Um, so uh, if you wanted to see a more direct uh, uh, charted comparisons of where they overlap, where they don't, um, and then also uh, where the Second Helvetic Confession ties in as well, uh, do pick that book up. And we are not receiving a cut uh, for uh, for uh, marketing. Although, if anybody from RHB is is watching this, you know, be interested <laughs> in that sort of arrangement, please contact us because we would be keen. Very keen. I I buy a lot of your stuff, so me too. <laughs> me too. I I, uh, I've had some stuff come in. I just got the. Uh, the new, uh, it's not a new translation, but the new edition of the Leiden synopsis. Mm. Uh, I got it from RHB because uh, RHB they usually will beat most other places on price too. I mean, they'll sell the same books others do, but usually a few dollars off. So I think time wise too in in shipping and distribution because I had a I pre ordered uh, the Leiden synopsis the um uh. You know, when it first went up on pre-order by the publisher, Davenant, uh, the Davenant Institute. This is what that looks like if you're watching <laughs> the second volume anyway. But it's, uh, but yeah, so I ordered it from, you know, from the publisher. And, uh, uh, and I think mine shipped out from the publisher the first, uh, the, the, the day that Andrew got his in the mail from Reformation, um, from Reformation Heritage. So, I live farther away. It's true. So it's uh, so that's pretty funny. Um, and I yeah. Anyways, so we're, all uh, this free publicity marketing. for RHB. So yeah, like I said, <laughs> if you something. work for RHB, you know, we're we we would love to we would love to partner with you. But anyway, <laughs> for the rest of you, we thank you for joining us for yet another installment of comparing catechisms on Once for All Delivered. I uh, hope you enjoyed it. hope it was helpful to you. As always, if you have any questions, have any comments, have any complaints, you can contact us. You can email us ofadpodcast at gmail.com or we're on most social media at ofadpodcast. Yes, point to the bottom of the screen. Um, and uh, yeah, it's been real. It's been fun. It's been thoroughly reformed. Thoroughly confessional. It's been, uh, it's been inane. It's been inane. It's been juvenile. Uh, it has been discursive. Take it, Heidi. Thank you for listening to this episode. For the latest news and updates, visit our substack at onceforalldelivered.com, where you can also support our work with a paid subscription. You can also follow us on social media at OFAD Podcast. If you like what you have heard, leave a five-star review where you get your podcasts and spread the word about the show. Once for All Delivered is hosted by Andrew Smith and Caleb Castro and produced by Andrew and Heidi Smith. A special thank you to our founding members, Eric and Kathy Hepker. We hope you will join us again next time on Once for All Delivered.